Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You could use a shortwave radio with the schedule of English language broadcast, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from France 24, NHK World Radio Japan, and Radio Havana Cuba. We will begin with France 24. First, a press review on a wide-ranging press call given by French President Macron. It included limits for students' screen time, an experiment with compulsory uniforms for students, and language borrowed from the right-wing politicians. France 24 has a daily program called Perspective, and this one was an interview with Simon Schuster, a Ukrainian-born Russian-American who is a senior correspondent at Time magazine. He has written a book called Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. He tracked and followed Zelensky since his days as a comedian and TV producer, and how and why he demands that the war continue. France 24. Yesterday, uh, Tuesday night, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, gave a sweeping uh, press conference uh, addressing a lot of issues, domestic issues, uh, foreign policy issues, also uh, addressing France's falling birth rate. Um, how is the French press reacting to that uh, today? Yeah, as you say, actually, that two-and-a-half-hour address made by President Emmanuel Macron yesterday. I'll start with Aujourd'hui en France. They have this headline saying that Macron is on the offensive, they say, a week after the appointment of new Prime Minister Gabriel Attal and a new government. The president is trying to reinvigorate his five-year term. Among the things suggested in the speech was regulating children's screen time and also introducing compulsory school uniforms. That is going to be trialled in about 100 schools. He said he wanted to work to reverse France's declining birth rate and set up a national programme to fight the rise in infertility. Move on to the Huffington Post. They say priority to the right. Uh, they highlight the almost Sarkozyan tone of yesterday's speech and the way in which Emmanuel Macron unabashedly dipped into the vocabulary of the right, even going so far as to use the election slogan of both Eric Ciotti, the leader of the Republicans, and the far right Eric Zemmour, who both want France to stay France. The Post sees this as proof that the president intends to finish what he's been doing for the last six and a half years and winning over the right-wing electorate, an objective that has become increasingly important five months ahead of the European elections. I'll bring you the left-wing Libération. Uh, they condemn what they call an old France discourse, setting out an update, outdated, even conservative vision. Media parts take a similar tone. They call it old-fashioned right-winged discourse and say that it's a great leap backwards.
Now it's time for perspective on the programme. As we head to the second anniversary of the start of Russia's full-on uh, invasion of Ukraine, I'm joined on the programme today by a man who knows perhaps more about the inner workings of what went on and what is still going on in the corridors of power in Ukraine than any other. Even a man who knows more about the inner workings of the mind of President Volodymyr Zelensky than perhaps any other. Simon Schuster is a, a Russian-American of Ukrainian origin. He's senior correspondent at Time magazine and he spent the last few years tracking and following the situation in Ukraine with unprecedented access to Zelensky and his team. Here's his book. It's called The Showman Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Volodymyr Zelensky. First of all, just tell us about the kind of access you've had to Volodymyr Zelensky and how you were able to get that access to. Well, I got to know President Zelensky before he became president, when he was running uh, in the spring of 2019. I did a profile of him, his candidacy. Uh, and at the time, he was a comedian, an actor, uh, a showman, um, and I got to go backstage at one of his comedy shows, which functioned essentially as a campaign rally. Um, and over the course of that reporting, I got to know him, and I stayed in touch with him and his team um, as they continued to govern after he won the elections. Uh, and that put me in a pretty unique position when the invasion started to come to him and say, look, these are historic events happening all around us, all around you. Um, so I'd like to write a book about it. And he said, um, yeah, go for it. I don't have time to write a book, but someone should. You say showman, he was a showman. Is he still a showman? I think that is his superpower. The skills that he honed over 20 years as an actor, uh, as a TV producer, a filmmaker, a scriptwriter, uh, has allowed him to grab and hold the world's attention in a way that I think few other leaders, if any, could have done in this situation. And, and the, the nature of this war has really required Ukraine to keep the West on its side, to keep the world's democracies supporting Ukraine, not only the leadership, but also the people in those democracies. And that is what Zelensky is so good at. And is that enough, though? I mean, we've seen cracks starting to appear, haven't we, within Europe, certainly within the US with funding, for example. Yeah. Is that going to be enough for him to, to carry that forward, do you think? Well, he's been very uh, wise to the fact, since our first conversations early in the invasion, that the attention span of the world would run out. And essentially, he's seen his mission as trying to extend uh, the focus of the world to keep that attention focused uh, on the picture of the war that he needs the world to see to maintain that support. But he understands that, that the clock is ticking and eventually other crises, like the war in Israel, for example, he didn't foresee it, but he foresaw that some other crisis would come up and distract the world from, from the, the Ukrainian uh, agenda. Um, and indeed, that's happening now. He's struggling with it every day, trying to come up with new reasons to keep the world's focus on Ukraine, to keep that support going. But it's, it's harder and harder as, as time goes on. I mean, that must be intensely worrying, not only for him, but for the, the people of Ukraine as well. It is, yeah. And, and we're coming up on the two-year mark, as you said. Um, you know, people are getting more tired. That is clear on the streets of Kiev. You, you see it in the conversations that, that you have there. Um, and... You know, that, that is also inevitable. Um, I think in the beginning, President Zelensky and many of his uh, close advisors promised that there would be victory, that this war would not last as long as it did. Indeed, when we first talked about it with President Zelensky, I said that my book would be published in about a year. He said, what, you think the war will still be going on in a year? And now we're coming up on two years. The casualty count continues to grow and, and the frustration uh, around the world, uh, the, the fatigue, the, the desire for the war to end is, is also growing.
You mentioned two years ago. I mean, two years ago, we were in that situation where, we where Russia was amassing troops on the border. Mm. Everyone, well, not everyone, but a lot of people would say, surely they're not going to really invade Ukraine. Mm. What do you think was going on in Zelensky's mind and in the corridors of power in Kyiv at that point? Yeah, the book looks very closely at that decision, uh, that, that point leading up the, de the decision Zelensky made essentially to say, Everybody keep calm. There isn't going to be this large-scale invasion. And that, that's what he was telling his own people. Um, the reason was, I think, as, as he describes it, he was faced with a variety of intelligence. The Americans were presenting a very extreme picture of the invasion, essentially Russia attempting to take over most of the country, if not all of it, whereas the European intelligence services, European leaders were telling him that the Americans may be exaggerating. So he sort of chose to believe uh, the, the latter. And when it did come, panic? Yes, uh, unavoidable. I mean, if, if you are faced with a full-scale attack from a nuclear superpower attempting to, you know, kill the leaders of the country, take them hostage, uh, and take over the government, you can't avoid panic. There was panic in the streets. Sure. And do you think it was just luck in a way, um, the way that initially that immediate invasion effectively didn't work? I mean, it all went very wrong for the Russians at the beginning, didn't it? No, I mean, the, the book takes you behind the scenes of the preparations that were ongoing. The military in Ukraine was preparing, and I talked also to the military commanders who were in charge of those efforts. So it wasn't only luck. Uh, I think the Americans in one phone call that's described in the, in the book told the general, uh, you got lucky that, that you didn't get overtaken in those first days. And his response was, it wasn't only luck. There was, there was a plan. There was a strategy to prepare. Some of your work in the past has proved controversial. Uh, I mean, you published a piece in Time last year where you claim that Zelensky felt let down by his allies for not um, backing up Ukraine's fight enough. That's true, yeah. Um, that's what I was hearing from um, his close advisors. Uh, I went there and I talked to all of them. Uh, a, a lot of the ones I, I, I uh, have met with throughout the course of the invasion, and the mood was definitely different because the context of the war had changed. Uh, as one of them said, we're not winning. Um, but President Zelensky continued to push his message of victory. Uh, he, he refused, uh, and I think still refuses, to acknowledge some of the difficulties on the battlefield, as described by his own advisors, as described by the military commanders. He's still pushing this message of uh, promising total victory to his people. And have you spoken to Zelensky about that, that article you wrote since? I mean, was, was he happy or unhappy about the fact that you wrote it? Uh, not happy, I mean, because it, it, it does, in a way, contradict the message that he's trying to project. Um, but he understood that I'm, I'm not working for him. I'm, I'm an independent journalist, so, um, uh, and his team respects that as well. So my, my conversations with them continue. I was in touch with them this week, so um, it, it didn't uh, cause a lasting breakup. You also talk about the state of mind of uh, Vladimir Zelensky, don't you? Whether he's becoming even perhaps a little bit too addicted to power? That's something that I think uh, Ukrainians and the world need to watch. Um, history shows that it's very difficult for a leader, once granted extraordinary powers, especially at a time of war, to give them back. There are historical precedents on both sides, um, but generally it's, it's something that should cause concern. Uh, under the state of martial law over the past two years or so, President Zelensky has had extraordinary powers to essentially rule by decree. Um, he has nearly full control of the, of the broadcast media in Ukraine under martial law, and giving that back will be a challenge. Uh, it, it's going to determine 
what kind of Ukraine we have at the end of the war. Will it continue to be a democratic country or not? It's an important <laughs> question. I think the idea that the West can turn a switch and force Ukraine to negotiate or capitulate is, is naive. The Ukrainians uh, can and will continue to fight as long as they think it's uh, worth it. Good to have you on the program today. Thanks very much for coming in and uh, talking to us. Simon Schuster, Russian, American of Ukrainian origin, senior correspondent at Time magazine as well. And his book is called, uh, as we said at the top there, The Showman Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. That press review and interview were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. Their program perspective is often very insightful. Next, NHK Japan. As Japan moves away from its pacifist constitution, it has reached a deal with the United States to buy 400 Tomahawk cruise missiles. The military in the Philippines plans to build infrastructure on remote islands and reefs in the South China Sea for supplies, troops, and ships. Iran has launched retaliatory missile strikes against an Israeli Mossad military base in Iraq in response to Israeli missiles killing an Iranian military leader in Syria last month. Pakistan and Iran have carried out series of military strikes on each other, raising concerns of further war in the region. NHK Japan Japan's leaders are acting on their pledge to significantly improve the country's defenses. They've reached a deal with the United States to buy 400 Tomahawk cruise missiles. The two allies put pen to paper on Thursday in Tokyo. Japan has been seeking the ability to launch counterstrikes on enemy missile bases and other targets. Officials say the Tomahawks will cost about $1.15 billion, and installing them on ships will set the country back a further $570 million. Japan plans to acquire half of the missiles in fiscal 2025 and have, have them all deployed by fiscal 2027. Turning to the Philippines, the country's military says it plans to build infrastructure on remote islands and reefs it effectively controls in the South China Sea. The chief of staff of the Philippine military says the development will include equipment for military personnel to live there. He added that the country will deploy more ships, aircraft and radar equipment in the future to strengthen its defenses. The Philippines effectively controls a total of nine islands and reefs in the South China Sea. The country is trying to update its facilities there, partly due to typhoon damage. China is also building a huge artificial island nearby. In December, the Philippines set up a new Coast Guard station with radar and ship tracking equipment on Titu Island. It's the largest territory controlled by the Philippines in the Spratly Island. Since last year, tensions between Manila and Beijing have been rising over a series of incidents in the South China Sea amid conflicting claims of sovereignty. Iran's state-run media says the country's revolutionary guards have launched retaliatory missile strikes against an Israeli intelligence base in Iraq. The attacks come amid growing concerns tensions in the Middle East 
could lead to a wider conflict in the region. Footage shows flames and columns of smoke rising from what's believed to be the site of Tuesday's attack. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps said it had targeted and destroyed one of the main espionage headquarters of Mossad in the Kurdistan region of Iraq. It said the strikes were in response to the recent evils of the Zionist regime in martyring the commanders of the Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Resistance Front. Last month, an Israeli missile strike on Syria killed a senior Revolutionary Guards member serving as a military advisor and two others. Iran warned it would retaliate. Iran supports Hamas in the ongoing conflict in the Gaza Strip. It has taken an increasingly confrontational stance toward Israel, raising concerns about escalation. Pakistan says it has carried out a series of military strikes on what it calls terrorist hideouts in neighboring Iran. This comes after Iran attacked targets inside Pakistan, raising tensions between the two countries. The Iranian Revolutionary Guards have conducted strikes on targets in nearby countries over the past few days. They launched missiles and drones attacking bases in a southwestern province of Pakistan, where they say an Iranian armed militia has taken refuge. Pakistan officials strongly condemned the attack they say killed two children. They responded on Thursday, saying they undertook precision military strikes against a Pakistani separatist organization based in Iran. Iran state media reported on Thursday several explosions in a southeastern province killed nine people, including children. The Iranian government has condemned the attack and is demanding Pakistan account for it immediately. There are concerns that the region could turn even more unstable. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan on shortwave. They are heard at 9 p.m. at 13735 or on the web at www.nhk.or.jp. All the times they announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. NHK may also be found at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report, or could help support this listener-funded program, like a good longtime supporter in Willits, California did this week, PayPal contact is available at my website, outfarpress.com, or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production and distribution of this show, which is supplied without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the globe. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. United Nations experts have taken Germany to task for defending war and genocide, charges leveled against Israel by South Africa at the International Court of Justice. A Palestinian shopkeeper showed Reuters a video of Israeli troops using him as a human shield in the West Bank. A United Nations expert accused the Israeli regime of displacing civilians en masse to permanently alter the Gaza population. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, Oxfam reported that the five richest men in the world have more than doubled their fortunes since 2020. Radio Havana, Cuba. 
United Nations experts and rapporteurs have taken Germany to task for defending Israel's genocidal war against Palestine. Balak Krishnan Raha Gopal, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Adequate Housing, censured the German move as shocking after Berlin became the first country to legally intervene in Israel's behalf at the Hague-based International Court of Justice and defend the occupying regime's months-long war on Gaza. During the ICJ's two days of hearings earlier in the week, South Africa instituted proceedings that accused Israel of genocide against Palestinians and said the regime's aggression aimed to bring about, quote, the destruction of the population. German officials have previously rejected the accusation of genocide brought against Israel by the international community and claimed that the brutal aggression was part of, quote, self-defense against the Palestinian resistance movement Hamas. Quote, shocking abdication of all responsibility by German, Bala Krishnan wrote on his ex-social media account. May better angels prevail, he added. Germany should be supporting efforts to enforce the Genocide Convention, not oppose it. Amid escalated Israeli attacks across the West Bank, a Palestinian shop owner says Israeli forces used him as a human shield during a raid on a town in the southern part of the occupied territory. Mobile phone shop owner Baha Abu Ras provided the information to Reuters on Monday. He gave the agency video footage of three Israeli troopers forcing him to walk in front of them at gunpoint during a raid on the town of Dura, near the city of Al-Khalil, Hebron. He, quote, the first trooper, told me he will use me as a human shield, Abu Ras said, adding that the trooper then ordered him, you will walk in front of me. Quote, that's what happened, and he took me towards the center of the town. Abu Ras said he had been taken from his shop earlier in the day after Israeli forces searched the premises during the attack on the town, in which two Palestinians were shot dead. The military military said the forces, the Israeli forces, used live fire during the attack to disperse around 100 Palestinians who had allegedly pelted them with rocks and firebombs. The occupying regime has escalated its violent swoops across the West Bank since October the 7th when it started a brutal military onslaught against the besieged Gaza Strip. Including Monday's fatalities, around 350 Palestinians have been killed across the occupied territory as a result of the escalation. On the other hand, the regime's genocidal war in Gaza has so far killed more than 24,280 Palestinians, most of them women and children, and they have left over 60,000 others injured. Philippe Lazzarini, the UNRWA chief, recently labelled Israel's onslaught on the besieged Palestinian territory a stain for humanity. Quote, the massive death, destruction, displacement, hunger, loss and grief of the last 100 days are staining our shared humanity. In a statement released on Sunday, the Palestinian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and expatriates said 100 days have passed, quote, and the Israeli occupation has turned Gaza into an uninhabitable place, committed horrific crimes and forcibly displaced approximately two million people. The Israeli regime is trying to deport the majority of the civilian population en masse as part of the plan to permanently alter 
the composition of Gaza's population, a UN expert has warned. The civilian infrastructure there has sustained extensive damage as a result of the relentless Israeli bombing. Latest figures show nearly 100 schools and universities and more than 140 mosques in the Gaza Strip have been completely destroyed. More than 80 hospitals and health centres are already out of service. The world's richest five men have more than doubled their fortunes since 2020, the charity Oxfam has said, sounding the alarm about unchecked corporate power as business elites hold their high-profile arrowing gathering in Davos, Switzerland. The five men are worth a combined $869 billion after growing their fortunes at the rate of $14 times $1 million per hour during the past four years. Oxfam said in its report, Inequality Inc. Despite the growth in the fortunes of the five, LVMH chief Bernard Arnault, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, investor Warren Buffett, Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison and Telsa CEO Elon Musk, five billion people have gotten poorer over the same period. Billionaires are today $3.3 trillion richer than they were in 2020, while a billionaire leads seven out of ten of the world's biggest companies the London-based charity has confirmed. If current trends continue, the world will have its first trillionaire within a decade, but poverty will not be eradicated for another 229 years, this according to the Anti-Poverty Group. Oxfam International Interim Executive Director Amitabh Bihar said that nobody should have a billion dollars. Quote, we are witnessing the beginnings of a decade of division with billions of people shouldering the economic shockwaves of pandemic, inflation and war, while billionaires' fortunes boom. This inequality is no accident. The billionaire class is ensuring corporations deliver more wealth to them at the expense of everyone else, Behar said in a statement released with the report. Quote, Runaway corporate monopoly power is an inequality-generating machine through squeezing workers, dodging tax, privatizing the state, and spurring climate breakdown. Corporations are funneling endless wealth to their ultra-rich owners, but they are also funneling power, undermining our democracies and our rights. Oxfam traditionally releases its annual report on equality just ahead of the opening of the annual World Economic Forum, the WEF, launched by German engineer and economist Klaus Schwab in the early 1970s to champion stakeholder capitalism. The charity said that corporations pay about one-third less in taxes than in past decades as a result of the lobbying war on taxation, starving governments of money that could be used to benefit the poorest in society. Oxfam said governments should cap CEOs' pay, break up private monopolies, and introduce a wealth tax to bring in $1.8 trillion each year. Quote, we have the evidence. We know the history. Public power can rein in runaway corporate power and inequality, shaping the market to be fairer and free from billionaire control. Governments must intervene to break up monopolies, empower workers, tax these massive corporate profits, and, crucially, invest in a new era of public goods and services, Behar confirmed. 
Those reports and viewpoint were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, but there's no podcasts. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140 and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, you can stream the English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.